Welcome to Lady Ripper, a true crime podcast. I'm Sarah, and as always, I'm excited to bring you today's case. This week, I have a special guest with me, my best friend for over a decade. Say hi, Janae May. Hi. This week's story is a dark one, and it might be hard to listen to at times. I won't lie. I cried many times while doing the research on this, and I was unsure if I was even going to use this case because it was so vile. It was very hard for me to write, and so if this one isn't for you, go ahead and skip to next week for a different type of murder, which hopefully won't be so dark. I was inspired this week by a story from Ripped from the Headlines. I'm bringing you a story of Irish serial killer John Shaw and his accomplice Jeffrey Evans. If you listen to the mini-sode, you will know that just last week he was granted a day out of prison to go into the city and enjoy a nice walk and sit in a cafe to enjoy a cup of coffee. This was so shocking to me, especially since in the news article they claimed that Shaw was one of Ireland's first serial killers and he had committed horrible and heinous acts on two women. I decided I wanted to learn more and share it with you. John Shaw and Jeffrey Evans were evil men straight to their core. They were both from the greater Manchester area in England and had criminal records dating back to their teenage years. Both Shaw and Evans' marriages had disintegrated, probably due to their excessive criminal activity and inclination to commit sexual assaults on young women. Shaw was illiterate and couldn't even sign his name and had to resort to signing his name with a large X. Later, he wouldn't even be able to write down his own confession and would have to give it orally. Now, Janae May, are you ready for the story? I hope so. <laughs> I'm not as much into true crime as you are, and so this is all new to me. Oh, great. Shaw and Evans meet while in prison in England. Shaw is incarcerated on burglary charges, but had previously been charged with attempted rape and indecently assaulting a young boy. Evans is incarcerated at the same time for burglary. They both are facing additional charges of sexual assault and rape of a 16-year-old girl. While they are in prison, they begin to fantasize of abducting, raping, and murdering young women together, and thus their deadly relationship is born. Shaw and Evans arrive in Ireland in 1974, where they commit a string of burglaries in which they are charged and convicted for. They are each sentenced two years, but neither serve their full sentences. I've noticed that this is a trend across many cases, that the perpetrators don't serve their full sentences and then go on to commit more brutal and serious crimes. So wait, they're both... They met in jail, and then they both went back to jail. Yes, so they met in jail, then they went to Ireland, and they committed more crimes, got sent back to jail... And then they got out. And they got out early. They got out early. Even though it was went... for a repeating crime. Exactly. Oy. And they just kept doing it over and over and over again. Which is why I don't understand why repeat offenders just keep getting let out of jail. That seems like a slap on the wrist versus an actual consequence to an action. Exactly. And Ooh. they just kept doing more brutal crimes after they went in. Oh, no. 
I mean, it's a serious problem that we have, like, especially here in the U.S., we have that problem, but apparently it's happening in other countries, too. So we're not the only problem. <laughs> no, we're not the only Everyone problem. Everyone has the problem. Got <laughs> yes. it. Got it. Sorry. Sorry. Go on. Go on. In 1976, the British police tried to extradite them back to England for their rape and sexual assault cases. Shaw and Evans are released again <sighs> on a one-month bond so that they can prepare for their cases. Rather than stick around to create a defense on why they should avoid extradition, Shaw and Evans borrow a car from a former inmate and drive north. They're ready to bring their fantasy to life. Their first victim is 23-year-old Elizabeth Plunkett. She loves the outdoors and loves to swim, hike, practice judo, and camp. She is a dark-haired, confident young woman. I think any woman who can do judo must be pretty badass. What do you say? Yeah, martial arts is nothing to mess around with, (laughs) let alone judo. (laughs) She has been dating her boyfriend, Damian Bush, for five months and has a good job working as a currency clerk. In August 1976, Elizabeth, Damian, and a few of their friends drive up from Dublin to Britta's Bay to enjoy the warm weather and sunshine. They stop into McDaniel's pub for drinks, where an argument breaks out between Damien and one of his friends. Elizabeth gets frustrated because they had come out to enjoy themselves, not to fight. She gets up and leaves the pub. This would be the last time her friends ever see her alive. Elizabeth is walking down a dark road away from the pub when a car pulls up next to her. Shaw and Evans have been driving through Britta's Bay after picking up a suitcase Evans had left at Houston Station when they see Elizabeth leave the pub by herself. Now, it might seem silly now, but that suitcase will play a role down the line in the police investigation. Upon seeing Elizabeth, they know she's going to be their first target. They already have a plan in place. They just needed their first victim. And they decided to go for some confident-looking young adult exactly oh wow she was right there in front of them perfect for the taking oh no Shaw gets out of the car and lets Evans drive on the plan is for Evans to approach Elizabeth and see if she needs a ride according to Evans if there is only one man in the car it would seem less intimidating their devious plan works and Elizabeth gets into the car with the promise of a ride back to Dublin Once Elizabeth is in the car, Shaw gets into the back seat, and the torture begins. Evans pulls into the forestry plantation and parks the car. There they drag her into the trees and begin to beat her unmercifully. When she starts to struggle, Evans pulls down her pants and sexually assaults her. Both men repeatedly assault Elizabeth throughout the night while she begs for them to stop. Shaw then drives to the Jack White pub to park the car so they would not be discovered at the plantation. While Elizabeth is back at the plantation being viciously assaulted, her boyfriend and friends are out searching for her. Damien left the pub to go look for Elizabeth just 15 minutes after she had left. They search everywhere, but it was just as if she had vanished into thin air. On Sunday morning, after assaulting Elizabeth all night, Shaw goes to pick up the car from the pub parking lot. The car won't start and he falls asleep. A stranger sees him sleeping and helps him get the car started so he drives back to the forest plantation. When he gets back, he can tell something has gone wrong. Elizabeth is on the ground, dead. Shaw is pale and in shock as he describes what happened while Evans was sleeping in the parking lot. 
Shaw says that while he was sleeping, Elizabeth tried to escape, and so he had had to run after her and grab her. He then had been forced to strangle her with a shirt because she had been screaming so loudly. According to the book Killers, Murders in Ireland by Stephen Ray, Shaw recounts a slightly different version of Elizabeth's death. Shaw says Evans told him to kill Elizabeth, then says Evans allegedly said, Remember what happened in England apparently referring to the fact that they had both gotten caught and were facing charges for rape and sexual assault. So then he strangled Elizabeth to death. We don't have any other witnesses of Elizabeth's death, so all we can go on is the testimony of the two killers, and they have both pointed fingers at each other, so we'll never know exactly what happened. All we know is that it was a tragic end to a beautiful life. After Elizabeth is murdered, the two killers make a plan to dispose of her body. They put her body in the trunk of their car and drive out to Britta's Bay. There they steal a dinghy, oars, and a lawnmower. They strip Elizabeth naked and tie the lawnmower around her body and throw her overboard. Then they abandon the boat and drive back to the plantation where they pick up Evan's suitcase. They throw Elizabeth's watch that she had been wearing into the woods. They have already lost or accidentally discarded her underwear and sandals along the way, but they don't seem to worry about it. The next morning, they go to a caravan site where they light a bonfire to burn Elizabeth's clothes. The fire attracts the attention of a Garda, or Ireland's version of a police officer. The Garda asks for their names, which they give as John and Geoffrey Murphy. Meanwhile, the search for Elizabeth continues on. On September 4th, her discarded bra is found in the bushes, then one sandal, and then finally her watch is found hanging from a tree branch. Did they put it in the tree branch? They just tossed it into the forest. Oh, and so it just happened to land in a tree branch. Just happened to land in a tree branch. And this guard didn't ask them why they were burning a bunch of clothes at all? Just... He, he asked them what they were doing, and they said that they were burning clothes and they were on vacation. And he seemed to affect uh, accept it as just being, okay, cool, do you. You think you'd say something more like, oh, we're burning his ex's clothes because we're angry. How did that just fly with a guard? Like, we're on vacation, so we decided to burn a bunch of women's clothing. Yeah, but this this Garda will come back, and he will, he will remember them. Okay. So he redeems himself. At least there's that. Yes. <laughs> so they found the watch hanging from the tree branch, and then... During the search, the guardie, that's that's plural for the, their police force, the guardie cut back the grass and the trees to see better, and that's when they find a cardboard label with G. Murphy written on it. Suddenly, the guardie, who witnessed the two men burning the clothes in the bonfire, remembers the name that they had been given was Jeffrey Murphy or G. Murphy. The label had accidentally fallen off the suitcase Evans had been carrying around. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. That's why the suitcase was so important. That was some Nancy Drew problem solving right there. Yes. They immediately issue an alert with a description of the men that they are looking for. They are looking for two white males with British accents, both in their 30s. One male having long black hair and a beard. The other being small and fair skinned. The official search for John Shaw and Jeffrey Evans had begun. Was this done on the news, or was this just between the the force? No, they released it 
nationwide. Oh, wow. Yes. They knew that they were looking for some serious people. But then they have the heads up that they're being hunted. Well, they're not that smart. Oh, okay. That's fair. They kept, remember, they kept committing the same crimes over and over again and kept getting caught over and over again. And then getting released early over and over again. Yes. Okay. I'm here now. (laughs) Glad you're keeping up. (laughs) (laughs) Unaware that the Guardi were hot on their trail, Sean Evans drive to Fethard Co. Tippery. And I'm really sorry if I mispronounced that. I don't speak Gaelic. How dare you not be Irish? Yes. They... They'd return back to Fethard Cotipuri to return their friend's borrowed car. There they begin to, once again, commit a string of burglaries to get money so that they can continue on their quest to rape, torture, and murder women. They take that money to buy a caravan, which is like a trailer, I found out, um, to use as their next home base. Then they steal a green cortina, which they paint black, and then they set out to find their next victim. Mary Duffy is a 23-year-old, hardworking young woman. She works two jobs, one as a shop assistant during the day, the other as a cook in the evening. On September 22, 1976, at approximately 11 p.m., Mary is finishing up her shift in the coffee shop. She's wearing a red turtleneck, jeans, and a red duffel coat. She's also wearing her two signature gold rings. One has her initials MD on it, and the other one has her birthstone. Mary is known for always getting a ride home from work, either from her brother or a customer. That night, she calls her brother from the phone box outside her work. When she can't get a hold of him, she leaves a message just letting him know that she'll be walking ahead down the road and will meet him on the road just ahead. At this time, Shaw and Evans are watching Mary make the phone call and decide that she'll make the perfect next victim. Shaw hops out of the car and silently walks behind Mary while Evans parks the car farther up the street. There are several houses nearby this time, so the capture must be fast and quiet. Once Mary gets to the car, Shaw jumps out and tries to drag her into the back seat. She struggles and screams, And in order to force her to be quiet, Shaw punches her so hard in the face, part of her dental wear falls out and into the street. She continues to scream so loudly that neighbors later tell the police that they heard a woman screaming, and some even report that they saw a black cortina speeding down the street. No one who hears her desperate cries for help call the police. Why? That is so awful. No one... Oh my... People, if someone's screaming at night, maybe, I don't know, have someone of higher authority come check it out. Right? We'll talk about this later. A lesson for us all. Let's be real. Yes. That's exactly what we call it. It's called the bystander effect, by the way. Oh, I've heard of that. Okay. We'll talk about it later. Mary is pulled into the car and Shaw and Evans escape into the dark. A truly sad fact that... As Mary is being abducted and spirited away, her brother Michael is on his way to pick her up and drives right past her, completely unaware of what horrors she'll be facing in the upcoming hours. Isn't that terrible? That's some guilt right there. Yes. That's awful. And that's not even something you can... That's nothing you can control. No. That's awful, though. 
Yeah. Poor he, brother. Yeah. yeah, he, I just, I would be hor- horrified if I found out that I drove right past where she was just being assaulted and you had, you had no idea and there's nothing that left that you could do. That's something you don't want to know, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I would hate, I wouldn't want to know that. No, no. But I'm sorry that he knows that. <laughs> As Evans is driving, Shaw is in the backseat tying Mary up. He beats and rapes her continually, then switches Evans' position so that he can have his turn at her. They drive to Connemara and stop at an old railway station. Mary is stripped naked and taken into the woods where she is repeatedly assaulted by both men. The things she must have endured that night were so horrible and atrocious, but according to the book by Stephen Ray, she had stopped screaming and just said, don't do me any harm. Little good did that do her, but finally she is given back her red coat and tied to a tree while Evans goes to get the caravan. Shaw falls asleep until he awakes and has the urge to assault Mary again and again. I have lost count how many times this poor girl was raped by these disgusting monsters. Not only was she sexually assaulted, but she was also physically assaulted as well. They torture her for nearly 36 hours. Is this just their own sickness? Oh my. They are sick and sadistic. Like I said, this one was so hard to, to write and to listen to about how many times they assaulted their victims. They were just sick individuals. That's just awful. Awful. I'm so sorry to hear all this. My, my. While Evans is picking up their caravan, he grabbed a block of concrete, rope, and some Valium pills. When he returns to the campsite, Evans and Mary are inside a tent. She has been badly beaten and has a large gash across the side of her head, two black eyes, and some of her teeth are missing. She has extensive bruises and scratches all over her body. Not an inch of her is left untouched. When Evans goes into the tent, he gives Mary five Valiums and tells her that they would be taking her home soon. He goes to sit in the car while Shaw remains in the tent with a sleeping Mary. Soon after, Shaw takes a pillow and begins to suffocate her. Then he strangles her to death. It is reported that he sexually assaults her one final time. After she's died? Yes. They can't give her the dig. Oh my. This, it just keeps getting worse. Yes. I don't think it can get worse and then it keeps getting worse. It keeps getting worse. When Shaw came back to the tent, he sees Mary lying there dead. They make the decision to do the same thing they did in Britta's Bay, which means dumping Mary's body in the water. So they load her up into the trunk of the car and drive to a nearby lake. They steal a boat, oars, and a sledgehammer and row out onto the lake. Evans and Shaw take Mary's red coat off along with her two gold rings. They tie the sledgehammer and concrete block from this trunk of the Cortina around Mary's waist and throw her overboard. Once they are back to the shore, they take Mary's rings and throw them into the grass and weeds and throw her clothes and their sleeping bags over a bridge. Immediately after discarding Mary's body, Evans are already itching for more and they begin to plan for victim number three. But little do they know is that their distinctive black Cortina had been seen down by the train tracks. 
A witness had also noticed two Englishmen buying gas the night of Mary's abduction and alerted the guardie. On September 26, 1976, Shaw and Evans are arrested as they exit Ocean Wave Hotel. According to trial documents, when Shaw is taken into custody, he loses control and becomes violent, forcibly breaking a glass cabinet and a chair, and he has to be restrained by the guardie. By the next morning, Evans has confessed and says that Shaw is involved in the murders and rapes as well. The detective says, after hearing Evans' confession, quote, It was a nightmare. It was horror heaped upon horror. I don't think we have had an abomination on two feet like we did with Evans. He's not wrong. No, he's not. Jeez. When Shaw is asked about the crimes, he breaks down and makes a verbal statement because he cannot write one down. At one point, he tells the detective, God help me. The devil made me do it. Keep him away from me. He even volunteers to take the detective to where they had disposed of Mary Duffy's body. Despite making full confessions, both men plead not guilty to multiple charges of kidnapping, rape, torture, and murder. This leads to a long series of trials and appeals, none of which were successful. So wait, do they claim not guilty because they are trying to avoid like a death penalty? Is there the death penalty in Ireland? I don't believe there's a death penalty in Ireland. Um, They just went back. They... I don't think they recanted, but they um, did. They pled not guilty because they didn't want to serve life in prison. Right, right. Um, but they confessed to the murders. They took them to the location where the body was, where they dumped the clothes. So I'm not sure why they decided to plead not guilty. It wasn't very clear. Um, and then on their appeals, at least... Shaw appealed that he didn't get a fair trial. And so they kind of went appeal after appeal. And even still today, they're appealing different things. You know, it's just never ending. I can't stand it. I some, can't. Some, some of these criminals just will not give up and will not let families have any peace. And they just don't want to face the consequences of their actions. Yes, exactly. It just makes no sense. Like, if you killed someone and you confessed to it, just just accept it and let the family have the rest of their life in peace. Honestly, like, give them that small mercy. Oh, Evay. Yeah. Well, here's where it gets worse. In 2003, there are reports that Shaw and Evans could potentially be released from prison after being incarcerated for 30 years. So they were sentenced to life, but after 30 years, they're trying to get released. That's going to be a no from me. That just, just, (laughs) don't let criminals out early. Just don't, just stop. (laughs) An appeal is filed to stop their release, claiming that they are a danger to the public and would absolutely re-offend. The appeal for release is unsuccessful. Finally, someone had some sense. Someone. About time. So, did they get sent to the same prison during this time as well? Or I'm hoping they were separated because they were able to see that these two guys should not be in the same area with each other. You know what? I did not find, like, which prisons they were were sent to. Um, I don't know that they necessarily have, like, a lot of 
high security prisons in in Ireland. Right. Um so I'm not really sure. All right. Yeah, I'm just I'm just wondering question. if they were smart enough to do that too. No, I I don't know. That's a good question. I'll have to look into it. In 2008, Jeffrey Evans has heart bypass surgery. After the surgery, he suffers a stroke, which causes him to go into a vegetative state. Good. (laughs) After that, he's granted a temporary release and was taken to St. Mary's Hospital in Dublin. He remains there until 2012, where he dies of sepsis due to a hospital-required pneumonia. Great. He does not have a funeral, and no family comes forward to claim his body. Spectacular. 10 out of 10. It's about time some justice was served. In 2016, Shaw puts an appeal forward to the Prison Review Committee regarding a potential temporary release. This is where it's going to make you mad. He's frustrated that in 38 years, he's never gotten a day out of prison. Oh, poor baby. My thought is, what do you mean in 38 years you have never gotten a day out of prison? Who gets a day out of prison? This isn't vacation. I was going to say, you get a check in and check out just on like a whim? Like, you don't deserve to have an ounce of sunshine, let alone a day out of prison. No, no, stay there. If he could also be in a vegetative state, would recommend. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently, during his 38 years of prison, he's only had one visit from a family member. So, he's complaining about that that too. Maybe your family doesn't want to associate with you because you're a serious, evil serial killer. I was going to say, like, what what would the the purpose of that visit be besides to just ream him for everything that he's done i'm curious i would if i could be a fly on the wall for that conversation that would be intense i would i would probably if that was someone in my family i'd probably just be like this is the only time i'm talking to you and this is i'm saying i'm disowning you please change your name because i don't ever want to be associated with you ever again right like how horrible you are and oh i just can't even imagine what you would say to someone like that and he should be grateful for that one visit even if they were just telling him off for everything that's more than he deserves yeah so this appeal for the temporary release is denied because he is a high level risk of reoffending. they also say he has poor problem solving skills negative emotionality deviant sexual preference significant social influences hostility towards women general social rejection and a lack of concern for others now don't get too angry or maybe do get too angry in 2020 shaw's appeal was reevaluated, and he was granted two days of temporary release each year hi in 2020 Shaw's appeal was reevaluated, and he was granted two days of temporary release each year. He is allowed to leave the prison with two plainclothes guards. His release was delayed two years due to the COVID pandemic. Finally, last week on May 22, 2022, Shaw was allowed to leave the prison and walk about Dublin city center. He was even allowed to sit in a cafe and have a coffee. Imagine if you walked by or were sitting next to one of Ireland's most prolific serial killers and had no idea. 
He looks like an innocent old man as he's 75 years old. He's also Ireland's longest serving inmate. He doesn't deserve the coffee. He doesn't deserve the two days out of prison. That seems very generous. It's way more than generous. It's He doesn't deserve that. He deserves solitary confinement in a basement. With, with no blanket. No blanket. None. So Shaw apparently works recycling computer parts while behind bars and doesn't interact much with other prisoners. He has a pet budgie, which I looked up, and I think a budgie is a bird. Yeah, it's a bird. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you knew that? Yeah. I had no idea what it was. I Googled it. Oh, yeah. It's a bird. little bird. Oh, okay. So he's allowed a pet and two days out of prison? Uh-uh. And guess what its name is? Is it the other guy's name? Is it, like, Jeff or something? Is it- yep, its name is Jeffrey. No! <laughs> Named after his best friend, Jeffrey. <laughs> I hate everything about that. <laughs> I'm so upset. Jeffrey lives on. No! No! <laughs> no. So, I wish that I had more information to give you about Elizabeth and Mary, but there is very little about uh, very little information out there. I feel like telling the victim's side of the story is very important. So I just want to put out there that I gave as much information as I could about them. And if I could talked about them more than Evans and Shaw, I definitely would have. It might have been the family wanting respect and privacy and not and keeping those things for themselves, you know, as like treasured memories versus putting them out there on the internet. But maybe one day. Yeah, you know, it. there might have been... Um, I that book that I that I talked about the killers murders in Ireland. I really wanted to get a hold of that book, um, but it's like a a really rare kind of book. Like it would have taken me to special order it, and it was like sixty dollars, and it would have taken weeks for me to get. So I did not get it. Um, so the little bits that I I found from the book were you know quotes and that kind of thing. So maybe in that book, he was able to talk more about them. I'm not sure. Anyone wants to uh, lend that book to either me or Sarah? That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be, you know, donations appreciated to read that book. That would be wonderful. Um, well, so overall, Sean Evans, Shaw and Evans were known as Ireland's first and most prolific serial killers. They committed such heinous and disgusting acts about... Uh, against two wonderful young women that I think they absolutely deserve their prison sentences. I'm appalled that Shaw has even been granted to leave the prison when Elizabeth and Mary will never get that opportunity again. I'm not sure I want to say I hope you enjoyed this story, but I hope you get some new information that you had never heard before and you stick around for the next episode. Well, so Janae May... Let's talk about some things. Oh, geez. I, I've never heard this story before, so this was all brand spanking new. So sorry if my knee-jerk reactions weren't exactly uh, appropriate, but I'm just... It's a shocking case. Yes. The only reason I came across this story was because I had heard about Shaw having his temporary release. And I was just so shocked by it because we don't have any sort of program like that here in the U.S. And... I don't think we should have any sort of program like that. No. I found it as- astonishing. If you confess and are convicted of murder, you should get no release. 
ever. Yeah, you should not have a vacation day from prison. This guy doesn't deserve his day in the sun drinking coffee. No. <laughs> like, that is just crazy to me. Just insane. Who who signed that off? Like, A judge. A judge signed that off. You vote that judge out. <laughs> He's got to go. She's got to go. The judge got to go. But it's normal. It's normal for prisoners, not just him, for for other inmates to get that temporary release really? two times a year. Yeah. I for, guess that means they're not playing favorites then. I, uh, no, it's not not just him that's getting it. It's it's all not all, but like you get it for good behavior and you know, for if you work while you're in prison and you know, like I said, he works recycling computer parts, so he you know he has a steady job and a budgie named Jeff. <laughs> so upset. I know, like they just give him a bird, bird to have in prison. I'm surprised he hasn't killed the bird. Oh no, but it's named after his best friend. I'm still surprised. I this guy would not trust to hold my purse for me while I went to the bathroom, let alone with a living animal. No, he would probably go through his, your purse and burglarize it. He's going to find nothing. I'm poor. <laughs> so let's go back to this, the subject of Mary's neighbors not doing a single thing when they hear her screaming. Yeah, the, the standby effect? The bystander, bystander effect. Bystander effect, yeah. Yeah, so bystander effect is when um, bystanders literally hear a crime being committed and they don't do anything. They don't call for help. They don't come in to help you. They think someone else is going to do it. Yeah, they think someone else is going to do it. Or they're like, I don't want to get involved. So, I mean, I find that to be absolutely uh, like horrifying and just really tragic. Yeah. I mean, they could have definitely prevented or stopped her murder from happening and stopped all of the terrible things that happened to her, you know, just by calling the police. Right? Like, that doesn't seem like getting too involved, just calling for someone else to step in, honestly. When someone even saw the car, they had a description of the car. And the police had a description of the car and the and um, both of John and Evan's descriptions, you know, beforehand. So they knew who they were looking for. And... You know, that just would have saved someone's life. I just, I can't understand, but I don't know. I've never been in that situation, so maybe I would fall prey to the same effect. But, you know, bringing awareness to it definitely helps people maybe snap out of it to be like, oh, wait, like, I can't guarantee that someone will make a move on this. I should be calling the police. I should be, you know, taking the initiative to do something. So maybe even just talking about the effect and being able to have that in your brain somewhere that if the opportunity comes up where you can be of help and assistance, you just do it instead of falling prey to it. Yeah. Well, and as being a former 911 operator, um, it's always better to call and say, Hey, I heard something suspicious. I saw something suspicious. Send an officer out. You know, I want to make sure everything's okay. Right. We are absolutely so happy to go send an officer out to check things out. It's better to be safe than to be sorry. There's something called see something, say something. And that's the number one thing you could possibly do. You don't, it's, like I said, it's better to just be cautious and 
send someone out there. Honestly, yeah. I mean, I think the the originality of the bystander effect, I think that's when they brought in the term was there was a young lady in New York and there was like over 50 witnesses. They heard her being attacked and murdered and no one did anything. And that's kind of when this whole idea of the bystander effect came into play. Is that why they always tell you if you're being attacked, you should be calling people specifically like you in the red sweater. Help me. Yeah. Yeah. Or I remember when I was younger, we took a self-defense class and they said, rather than screaming help, you should scream fire, fire, because people will help you if they think a fire is nearby versus you just screaming help. That's insane. I mean, I don't know if anyone else has, but was ever taught that, but that's what I was taught. I've heard of it. I didn't know that was like an actual piece of advice to be given. That's ooh-y. Yeah, that's that's what I was uh that's what I was taught growing up. See, I was taught to call for someone specifically and point people out, you know. Mm-hmm. You call 911, you in the black jeans and the sweater vest, help, you know. Mm-hmm. Because apparently just watching is something that's I don't instinctually in us. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. And so can you even imagine being, um, so both Shaw and Evans, they were divorced. Not, I don't know if they were, yeah, they were divorced. Their marriages fell apart. Yeah. Their marriages fell apart. They were divorced. Can you imagine being their family and finding out that they did these horrible things? Because they had children too. They had children? They had children. Oy. That's, I mean, y- finding out that your your fathers were the most prolific serial killers, you know, because of the things they did. It makes me wonder if they changed their last names. Well, they might not have because they lived in England and then they were incarcerated in Ireland for their crimes. That's true. So they might not have had the same infamy that they did in Ireland as in England. So they might have, you know not been as affected by it but i'm sure they were emotionally affected by it oh yeah you just tell people your dad's dead you just make it easy on yourself and tell him that he just doesn't exist anymore because at that point you don't want him to yeah but and then what do you would you i mean what would you think you know like would you think what if i had the potential to grow up and be like that would you be scared of that happening? I didn't even think of that, especially as a kid when you're still developing and growing and adjusting to the world. That would be something to be worried about. What if you turn out just like dad and therapy? I, think, I Yeah, see, I would think that, I think I would think that. I'd be like, what if I grew up to be like my father? You know, would I, or what if you see, like, see similar traits in yourself? And, you know, because, I mean, there's always those... Is it nature versus nurture? You know, are you born that way? Right. Like, what happened to these guys that just made it click in their head? That they're like, we just want to go rape and murder people. Yeah. And like I said, I couldn't find, and I couldn't find any background um, about them, about their growing up. I don't know anything about their childhood, if they came from broken families, or if they were also sexually assaulted when they were younger, because I know that a lot of times plays a role in these type of killers. Right. You know, where they come from broken households and then they um, come up from abuse. And sometimes that 
plays a huge role in whether or not they, you know, on whether they become, you know, serial killers or rapists and all that kind of stuff. Not saying that everyone who has that happen to them will become a serial killer or rapist, but a lot of times these predators have that kind of background. So I couldn't find any information to see if that no information if they got psychologically evaluated after being incarcerated no no i don't know what therapist would want to touch that with 10 foot pole to be fair i mean i think it would be really really interesting if if they um if they had done like some studies on them or if they are seeing any sort of therapist while they're in prison or if that's just something they they don't do or and they don't care about they get their two days off but they won't get therapy <laughs> i don't know just saying <laughs> i mean what was it that you were saying earlier about uh traumatic brain injuries oh so uh i i'm not into the true crime and stuff because it kind of jitters me out but i did find it interesting i heard that they say there's such a uptick in serial killer cases in like the 70s and 80s because of lead paint and lead paint can affect you yeah or um traumatic head injury a lot of serial killers have had a traumatic head injury as a child and it just derails you from there and so that's something that i've heard and i just find that like could you imagine getting a a big bump on your head as a kid you know eight ten years old and then for the rest of your life it just throws you out of whack and yeah and it determines the rest of your life right like does it just flip a switch in your brain what happens and so i think there's a lot that we have to think about when it comes to you know not only emotional side effects from things happening you know like how people who are abused in their childhoods tend to abuse people yeah still as adults yeah also you know, just thinking about the things that you have in your head and how that can really mess with you. The brain's still a really big um, enigma that we haven't figured out yet. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot to consider there. Be careful with your heads. Always wear your helmets. Yeah. Well, and if you think about, um, you see football players especially, they have a lot of head injuries. And then you hear about them as they get older and they're retired, how you hear some of them that you know go on and they commit murder or domestic violence and afterwards um you know when they when they die then they'll do um like a dissection of the brain and they find that they have these traumatic brain injuries and it has affected their brain in such a way that it changes them right it can change your personality it can change your personality and it can change um you know things that'll make it so you you do become violent, you know, and then you're predisposed to commit murder or rape or something like that. And like you're saying, I mean, that makes sense about why some people go on to become these terrible people. And it's all because of the brain and the brain sometimes has these, if you damage your, your brain, it's just going to affect you for the rest of your life. Right. And that's just so insane to think about that something that happened decades ago could just impact you so much later and you don't even realize it yeah i mean that's i mean i and i i maybe that they were dropped on their heads as babies i don't know same (laughs) same but i'm not out here killing people that's just 
Oh, not yet, at least. Sarah, no. <laughs> no, Sarah. I appreciate you for inviting me and giving me a peek into your world here. Uh, you definitely have a good thing going for you. This is insane. And I'm glad that you had me on your show today. Yeah, it has been so much fun having you on. And I've enjoyed all your comments and you being so excited to hear uh this terrible story. <laughs> I'm sure you just looked over at my reactions. I was just like gobsmacked the whole time and flabbergasted. I know there are sometimes you made eye contact with me and I just had like this like oh, horrified look <laughs> on my face because it's not every day you hear about people in Ireland just going crazy. Yeah, no, it was it was great. Um, I would love to have you back sometime and yeah. Uh, do you want to give a shout out to any of your social media so people can know where to find you? Oh, sure. So I am Janae May on Instagram and TikTok. I typically don't do true crime stuff, but I don't know. Maybe I might have to from now on. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for joining us today. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Please follow me wherever you listen to your podcasts. Pictures will be up about today's case. Please follow me on my Instagram at Lady Ripper Podcast or follow me on Twitter at Lady Ripper Pod. Bye.